Hello? That was a cool thing about the 80s, you know, like all those movies like were like that. Every one of my games, I try to do something brand new. Best time to get someone, man, when they're well fed and, and had a couple of wines. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Retro Project Podcast. My name is Steve and I am your host. Now today is the second part of our chat with David Crane. David will be with us in just one moment. Until then, I'd just like to let you know where you can find us. You can find us on Facebook at Retro Project Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Retro Project Pod. And you can send us an email to theretroprojectpod at gmail.com. Now, that's enough for me. So, please welcome David Crane. And uh, shortly thereafter, we changed the name to Activision. You guys seem to be packing a lot more into these games than the guys at Atari did at the time. I mean, just Pitfall, for example. The simple movement of Pitfall Harry himself, it was just... it was. It, I suppose at that time, it was the closest thing to like a, a cinematic adventure that we'd seen on the Atari. You've got music, you've got sound effects, you've got different screens, different enemies, different obstacles, and this guy who's running in this fantastic motion. I mean, obviously you're working for yourself, so you're probably a little bit more inspired, but what was it that took Activision to the next level, do you think? Well, you're right. I mean, we were working for ourselves, and so we were a lot more inspired. Um, we did not own any arcade games, so we didn't have that to fall back on, so now we had to make something that's absolutely creative and original. It was our only choice. Um, and we were the little upstart company with, you know, Atari, the behemoth company down the street. And, um, I mean, I've had people tell me that the first time they walked into their video game store and saw these games from Activision and saw, oh, this little company thinks they can make games that play on the Atari machine and compete with Atari. These are going to be a piece of crap. And um, we had to make them absolutely the best we could possibly make them to avoid that kind of a stigma. You know, if we put out a couple bad games, Activision wouldn't exist today. So we were driven to do that. Um, we had the most experience in video games. I mean, there were only a, two dozen people on the planet doing this sort of thing. And we had, you know, the foremost experienced. And we made sure that nothing left the lab that wasn't acceptable or better than acceptable to all of us. Um, you know, something was not good enough. We would not hesitate to tell our friends sitting next to him. I said, that sucks. You know, you, you can't, you can't release that. We have to do something better. Um, so all of those things combined, um, made our first games and they were very crisp, very well done. Um, then every game after that had to be better than the last one. So um, that's why we worked so hard to make, you know, different ways of doing things. I mean, the technology I put into Grand Prix is astounding for what the 2600 is designed to do. Again, this is, I, I was going through my, my cartridges and I only hit on the Atari ones before, but the bulk of my Atari collection is made up of Activision cartridges. Well, of course they are. <laughs> We were we were all very confident, <laughs> and still are. You guys did develop 
the very best that Atari had to, to offer on the 2600 at that time. There must have been, at some point, a, a bit of a, a victory lap from you guys when you realised that you you were basically doing a better job than the people who, who invented the console. Well, we did a lot of things. Um, again, we you know working together on these projects, making sure that you know, kibitzing on everybody else's game, but we also had some other thoughts. The Atari is actually very good at colors. Um, you can put out 127 different colors if you count all the brightnesses, and um, that's all well and good. And if you look at Atari's games from the 1980s, you'll see a lot of those colors. You'll see, you know, a maze with magenta walls, and and you'll see, you know, all these unusual colors. And we decided to go with more photorealism, and um, we ended up selecting the greenest green and the bluest blue, and a yellow and a brown and a black, and and making our games with realistic colors. And staying away from those crazy nutso colors that that were on that uh, machine's capabilities. Um, so when you looked at an Activision game, it looked very crisp and colorful and and you know primary in many cases from standpoint. Another thing that I had learned through an antique television technology. Um, it used to be that some of the older television cameras create a black halo around things just by nature of the way they sensed light. And um, so I experimented with that and found that if you use on the Atari, if you put a blue next to a green, it turns out that the joint between the two colors on the television screen would blur together. It would bleed together. But if you put a black line in between them, you can eliminate that bleeding, the blooming, um, you know, based on how the television signal worked and something I'd studied in my engineering courses. So um, we would do that a lot. And you'll see that in Grand Prix as well. You'll see a number of different places where it the color changes on the screen, but there's actually a single scan line of black in between the two colors. And... Now that I pointed that out, you put on Grand Prix and look at it, you'll see it, but you don't notice it. All you notice. Okay. What I'm thinking is at the, at the top where you've got the, you know, where you've got the, the track and the trees. There it is. I noticed it until you said it, but there's a black line in between, yeah. in between yep. there and the actual grey track itself. But I'd never noticed it until you've mentioned it, but now you've mentioned it because I've played that game so many times, I'm, I'm picturing it. And that's where that's where it lies. So the game receives more definition than a game was receiving right. back in the day. And so you look at the game and you say, that looks better. I don't know why that looks better, but it looks better. Yeah. And we, we did that time and time again. I mean, Grand Prix is another example. You recall that as you're driving along, you actually come up to a bridge over water. Yeah. If you could freeze frame on that, you will see that I even put a black line, vertical black line, on the leading edge of the blue water, um, which was extremely difficult to do on the Atari 2600. And I did that so that the blue water didn't bloom into the gray road. Yeah. And yeah, I spent a week making that happen, just to make that little black line, because I knew it would look better. And time and time again, you know, people would look at our early Activision games and say, those games look better than anybody else on the market, and I don't know why. 
you know, they must be using some different hardware, but no same hardware. It's over. The machine's already in grandma's house. We can't change it. <laughs> so it's just the, it, it was the subtlety of saying, well, let's just put a border. Let's just put an outline. Let's put some definition on these games. And like you, like you said, I knew that these games looked better. But, uh, you know, it's been 30-odd 30, 30 years I've been playing these games. And until you pointed it out, I didn't realise it was just something as simple. Well, it took you a week, so it wasn't overly simple. Um, but something as simple visually as just a simple yeah. back line. We did the, same thing, did the same thing with programming techniques. I mean, with Pitfall, you have to jump from alligator head to head. And the games run at 60 frames per second. That's another thing that we were very careful that all of our games ran at 60 frames per second, which is extremely fast and extremely crisp. And it gave you the kind of Twitch gameplay that you can't have any other way. Um, in television games, quite often they went to a lower frame rate. Um, then you got in P games where you're getting six frames a second and that sort of thing. We were 60 in every game. But if you think about it, if you're trying to jump from one alligator head to the next and you're your processing is at 60 frames per second. That means your joystick and button reads are done at 60 frames per second. So if you want to jump laterally, you actually would have to move the stick to the right and press the button within the same 60th of a second, or you would either jump straight up or you would run off the head and fall in the water. So yeah, my solution to that was I had extra code in there to say that if you jumped first, before the stick was read, you had three sixtieths of a second in which to read the stick in order to make the jump lateral and um, made it easier to jump lateral, made it possible, in fact, in some cases. Now, there's no way in that as a player that you were able to make one happen one sixtieth of a second earlier than the other and still get a lateral jump. But we put those kinds of things in because that was necessary to make them play so well. So they looked better, they played better, you know, it was all the things that we did. The games themselves were fantastic, but one of the things that I love looking back at Activision is there's one thing that you guys, for me, did yourself that set you apart. Um, a good example is the Atari game Surround. When you look at the cover artwork for Surround, it looks like it's going to be... Uh, a visually stunning kind of kind of game. Now, the art of Atari is one of the one of the great things which they did. They had some amazing talent working for them with the artwork, but a lot of the time it was the artwork that sold the game, and sometimes, just sometimes, on a false pretense. Um, the the boxes for the Activision games were basically a slightly stylized version of what you were going to be getting. Grand Prix is a good example. Pitfall is a good example. Laser Blast, Dragster, all of those games. It was a slightly heightened version, but it was almost a screenshot from the game. So there was never really any disappointment when you got the game home. Because you guys were obviously that confident with your games that you were able to sell them with a stylized screenshot. Was that a conscious idea to do that? Or was that something that just, again, just happened to just happened to come along it was 100 percent intentional i mean we felt the same way that we'd look at these box art and we'd say that's misleading what is that game my my favorite story from those days of ours you know the game breakout oh, yeah 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 
And how would you describe that game? I mean, you know, there's any number of ways you can think of it as pong on its side and knocking bricks out of the wall and that sort of thing. Yeah, a brick game. My my recollection is that the first line in the description of Atari's home version of Breakout is the sentence, you are flying through space. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> and you encounter a multicolor force field that you are chipping away with your, you know, round missiles or whatever. I don't know. And um, that was just marketing gone wild. And we absolutely refused to do that. So here we are at Activision. We have Jim Levy, who is a marketing genius, um, also good at promotions, which is why he figured out how to promote game designers and do a good job. Um, after all, we were doing a creative work. Why not be credited the way the book was credited? And he's starting to look at the packaging designs. And we walk into his office and we say, this is, this is non-negotiable. The games have to have cover art that represents the game. It's, it's just a screenshot. And there was silence because he's a marketing person and, you know, wants to do... He, they love to have, you know, beautiful art and, and artists doing renderings and things like that. Um, so we had a long knockdown, drag-out fight. And we ended up compromising. And he said, look, we can make your screen look like your screen, but it doesn't have to be done in pixels. You know, it can be drawn, it can be stylized a little bit, like with the Grand Prix, where they show the rainbow showing its motion and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and the rainbow were the, were the constant with you guys as well. We'd, we'd see that quite often on, on all of your game cartridges. Yeah, I mean, we um, put it into the logo in the first place, and remember that yeah. the Atari, Atari 2600 is actually good at doing colors. So um, we were able to put that rainbow in there. Then, of course, I did the sunset in one of the games, and that ended up in all the games, and just, you know, making them colorful. But anyway, so our final compromise was the front of the box will be a stylized version of the game, as long as it's not misleading. And the actual screenshot will always be on the back. So if you look at that, that's actually a pixel-for-pixel pixel screenshot on the back. So that when you've picked it up, you've been attracted to the game by the stylized picture. There's no misleading whatsoever. You turn it over, and you will see actually what you're going to see on your TV screen. Yeah, and you guys, you, you put those on the cartridges as well, the, the screenshots. I don't remember. I think maybe the stylized one went on the screen or on the cartridges in some cases. But, but in any case, the idea was you don't walk out of the store having been misled into what's inside the box. So that was our compromise. We had to fight over it. And, uh, you know, we're very happy with the results. But, uh, yeah, you're not going to see some stylized art thing that doesn't represent what the game is. The thing was, as well, is you guys would take concepts and make them into as realistic a, a game as you could, like uh, Enduro, Grand Prix, Fishing Derby, uh, Boxing, um, even... Uh, more arcadey ones, you know, like Pitfall, Laser Blast, all of those those kind of games. They there was always a grounding with them. If you played fishing derby, you know, you were a guy with a rod and a reel, and you were you were fishing. But you guys would add things to it, like the sharks, to make it more entertaining. Enduro, I used to I used to sit there for hours playing Enduro over and over and over again. Uh, again, a brilliant game. 
Um, and you took realistic concepts and just turned them into really fun games. Now, did, again, was that something that you guys deliberately did? Did you say, well, I'm going to do a fishing game and, well, I'm a, I'm a big fish fan, so I'm going to take Injuro and Grey and so on. How did you guys divvy up uh, what was done? Did you guys sit in a meeting and say, I've got an idea for a game and you'd go run with it? Well, if you're going to make a game, um, you'd better love it because you're going to be immersed in it all day and all night every, you know, for a year. Um, so we would certainly choose genres that we were interested in. An interesting aspect of that was what I would do over, over my career is, you know, I'd be inspired to do a space game. So I did Laser Blast, right? And what happened is the next year, everybody else was coming out with space games. Maybe not inspired by Laser Blast, but inspired maybe by the fact that there were a lot of space movies or space games or whatever. And by the time I was ready to start a new game, I was so sick and tired of space games, and I had to go to a different genre. So then I, you know, I went to Decathlon or whatever. And and so if you look at my games in order, uh, they are there are never two genres the same, and it's simply because I got tired of one genre and I wanted to say. You know, what can I do that's different, that's, that's neat? For the game concepts themselves, you really have to remember whenever you're thinking about the Atari 2600 that it can't do every game you can imagine. It, it's actually necessary to think about what the game system is capable of doing and design a game based on that. There's actually a, um, a college textbook called uh, Racing the Beam. Um, you've got that one. It, it, the concept that follows what I've just said, the concept is that the console drives the game in some cases. So you, you want to be aware of that, that um, you know what the console is capable of has a, an impact on the kind of games you're going to get to play on that console. So we didn't sit down and say, let's do a this, let's do a that. Um, we would each have some idea of a genre that we kind of are, are kind of interested in. We'd experiment with the Atari 2600 to see if we could make it do something interesting in that. And then we'd tweak it until it was, you know, fine honed gameplay, make the imagery as good as possible. Um, you know, so again, you can't just say, I've got an idea for a game and I'm going to make it on the Atari 2600. You have to go the other direction. And I mean, one of the things that you guys did better than anyone was your um, was your sports games. Fishing, derby, skiing, ice hockey, boxing, tennis. All of those games were just more so than, you know, if you looked at things like the um, Atari basketball and that kind of thing. That was, at the time, basically the one of the best sports games that um, Atari had made. Like the basketball one was, was a lot of fun. I, I used to play that a fair bit. But then you look at Activision's version of tennis, where you've actually got realistic movement. Uh, you know, you've actually there's no squares. the The rackets are, are in the, the the shape of a racket. The tennis court is there. The net is there. And you guys just, I think you were the first real innovator as far as sports games went. And obviously, you've mentioned that you you played tennis yourself for for quite a while. Um, what, what's the challenges of a sports game versus creating an original set like Pitfall? Well, you know, right off the bat, it knows what the sport's supposed to be. So 
Um, you want to do basketball, you're going to do one-on-one. Unfortunately, you can't, on the Atari 2600, you certainly can't do lots of different players on the screen. Um, you know, so when Al Miller did tennis, it was because he envisioned that doing it from the one side of the screen, looking down a perspective court was something that could be done with the 2600. And so he did it. And then he tweaked it until it played really well. Now, just so that you know, the Atari basketball that you are trashing here was also an Al Miller game, but he was very early in his career. And that was what was expected. I played basketball to death. Okay. It wasn't so. It wasn't so much a trashing. It was a. It was a comparison between what, what was being done at the two different companies. You know. So. You can at least say that Al Miller honed his skill over time, and uh, tennis looked better than basketball. But um, ice hockey, another good example. Um, that the thing about ice hockey was, yes, graphically, it was pretty. Good. It just played so well, and um, those kinds of things were what we prided ourselves on doing. And so in a sports game, it, it better play really well because people like playing that same sports game. And um, I'm glad to hear that you uh, you enjoyed those games. One of the things I've got to ask you is whose idea was the patches? You know, the achievement patches where if you reached a certain level in Star Mask or, or Pitfall, you could uh, extend away and, and receive the patches from... Yeah, I don't remember any one epiphany meeting where we had that decision. We, we had always wanted to have the um, high scoreboard like arcade games could have, but the Atari has no memory in it, no persistent memory. Um, so I, I've always just credited Jim Levy. Again, he's a marketing genius, and he, he did those kinds of things. But it probably comes that we had. of um, You know, it, it was combined with a newsletter so that you could send in your scores and get your scores posted, and and you get those patches. Those patches were... You know, done as well as the games were done. It was high quality work. And I always like to point out that, um, you know, it's the first achievement in video games were those patches. So, yet another thing that Activision pioneered. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're fan- I'm always scouring eBay to see if I can find a, a, a set. And they don't go cheap. Those, uh, those patches, they're, uh, they're, they're a commodity. Now, I've got one, I've got the Star Master patch. Um, and I'd actually, I actually earned that back in the day. Um, so that was uh, that was the game which I spent a, a lot of time playing. Pitfall I loved, but I was it was one of those games I used to play all the time, and I always wished I was better at it than I was. I always had a problem with the snake. Really, the snake was always an issue. The snake was harder. Than scorpion for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the scorpion I didn't I didn't have a problem with because you could you could kind of work out the the um, movement with the scorpion a little bit, um, and I rarely went uh, into the tunnels. I was most of the time up the top in the jungle, and as soon as that snake came along, I was like, ah, oh, no. And one question I've got for you: Is Pitfall supposed to be played left to right or right to left? All right. Well, I designed it left to right. But in the first week that it was released, everybody started playing right to left, and that's smarter. Because if you die on an obstacle, your new life starts on the left side of the screen past the obstacle. If you're going left to right and you die on an obstacle, you have to go through that obstacle again. Simple as that. Now, some other interesting things about Pitfall, since you didn't use the underground, the game had 250-odd screens, which was done with an extremely esoteric 
technological method possible. But um, I put a time limit in the game because it was designed that you cannot make it all the way through the world in the 20 minutes allotted. Uh, it's designed that way. You can't get all 32 treasures if you just run along the surface. Oh. And what, what, <laughs> happens, what happens in the underground is, you know, in, in the above ground, when you run off the right side of the screen, you run on the left side of the next screen. That's actually the thing that made platform game, form games, you know, possible. The idea that you go to a new screen and it's completely different. It could be anything on that next screen. But in the underground, when you run off the right side of a screen, you go on the left side of the screen, three screens farther to the right. You skip two screens. It's a shortcut. Yeah, well, I knew that that happened, but I didn't realize that you had it time. So if you were top, oh, yeah. you would never make it to the... I've, all these years, I've just been thinking, I'm just not very good at Pitfall, completely unaware yeah. <laughs> that it was actually set that way. You have to use the underground to get to the end of the end of the game. Now, the problem with that is, in some cases, if you take the underground path, in the two screens that you've skipped, one of them might have one of your 32 treasures. Yeah. So you have to map the world and map all the shortcuts so that you know that in some cases you run underground and then you go back to the other direction, whether it's left or right, to pick up a treasure before going back to the underground, you know, to jump through screens. So you have to use the underground to avoid screens you don't like. You could have avoided many of those snakes that way. But you have to be careful not to accidentally avoid a treasure. Yeah. So it helps to have mapped out the world. All right. Fair enough. Well, you know, live and learn. It's uh, it's now it's it's back to the drawing board. After after thirty odd years, I'm now going to have to go back and completely change the way I play Pitfall. So, um, now one of the things uh, about you personally, I mean, you've, your time with um, Atari, your time with with Activision, is you seem to be responsible for creating, when you do sit down and create games, you seem to be responsible for creating what people quite often consider to be the best games on those systems. Um, you did it with, with Pitfall. Pitfall was Game of the Year in 1984 um, and sat on the video game charts for 64 weeks, which is incredible when you consider you know, how many cartridges there actually were out there at the time. It obviously shows that, you know, Pitfall had legs because... And I always say this to people. A good game in 1980 is still a good game today. If you've got the gameplay elements there, I don't I don't believe a great game ever through ages. You may look at the graphics and kind of go, oh, it's not the same as today's standard. But if the gameplay's there, it's still a great game. Um, you've got Ghostbusters on the Commodore 64. You've got um, Boy and His Blob on the, um, on the NES you seem to have a habit of coming out with as i said what people consider to be some of the best games on those on those consoles you've also touched a lot of licenses as well as i said previously mentioned ghostbusters uh, you did transformers for the Commodore 64 um you've done um th i think it was you're involved in three simpsons games all up at the time when you're doing a license are there a lot of restrictions placed on what you can and can't do, or does it depend on the company you're working with? That certainly depends. Um, you know, companies that own property like The Simpsons 
are very careful about what the art looks like. Every character has to be approved and nothing. So you will get that that situation. Um, Ghostbusters, interesting thing about making a game for Ghostbusters, it was different in a lot of ways. First of all, there had never been a successful video game made from a movie at that point. And um, there had been some dramatic failures as well. Um, and the, the property came to us, and I'd have to say they didn't really know what they had. I mean, we read the script, that this is funny, and it's a great vehicle for the Saturday Night Live guys. And, and um, But nobody knew it was going to be the kind of cult hit that it became. So they didn't pay too much attention to what was being done. I mean, they licensed it to Activision. We were the top game and top business in the gaming business at the time and made the best products, so they were comfortable with just letting us fly because we were the creators. Um, but, um, you know, they probably would have been a little cautious had they known how big of a property it was going to be. But when I set out to make Ghostbusters, I used a particular philosophy. I Very similar to what I've been doing all my career is, you know, looking at what the, car, the hardware console is capable of doing well and leveraging that into making a game that works well. Same thing with the movie. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to create a game first and foremost. And I just set it in the Ghostbusters universe. So, and plus, we had a horrible deadline. Um, it came to us way too late. I mean, I almost, the movie was almost in the theaters before I got started. Um, and how long, did, how long did you have on, on Ghostbusters? <clears throat> um, maybe four months. Oh wow! And it normally it normally takes about a year to make a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you have to be out with most properties, particularly movie properties. You have to be out pretty shortly after the movie because some hot new movie comes up and everybody forgets about the last one. You know, Ghostbusters is an exception. It was you know it, um, but when when we took the project. It was brought back to us in the lab, and we reviewed it. We read the script and everything and, and said, yes, this would be fun. But if we don't have this thing out, shortly after the movie's theatrical release, we're wasting our time and we shouldn't do it. So I stepped up and I said, you know, I'm working on a game right now that I'm half done with. And the game was called Car Wars. And it was... Basically, it had a number of different scenes in it already. A top-down view of a car racing through, um, you know, the yeah the white lines moving to show motion and that sort of thing. And, and you were going to be shooting other cars and fighting other cars and that sort of thing. Kind of a vertical Grand Prix. Um, and it was also going to have the first in-game economy in a video game where you would earn points and you would take them back to the shop and you would buy things to customize your car. You'd buy weapons to you know, beef up your car and this sort of thing. And I had the top-down view of a car. I had the um, in-game economy working where you used a little forklift and you took a, a weapon and you attached it to your car and that sort of thing. And a uh, top view of a city map and I was working on creating an entirely original game on that concept. 
And I said, I volunteered. I said, all right, I can take Car Wars and I can retest it and I can make it in the Ghostbusters universe. So I'm still just going to make the game that I want to make. Um, but it's going to be the Ghostbusters car instead of the race car. And it's going to be ghost vacuums instead of machine guns. And um, anyway, so that made it possible. And that became the game Ghostbusters. Now, I would have loved to have another year on it because I didn't handle the economy very well. It was the first video game economy, but it wasn't one that you would even think twice about. Um, you didn't have to worry too much about earning money and buying things and all that kind of stuff. So there were a lot of things that I would have liked to have done, but there really wasn't time. But I got to the game, the game to the point where at least it played and played pretty well. And uh, we got it out in time. It's, it's, it's a game that plays very well. I mean, that was one that we used to, again, it was, a, it was on constant rotation. So with, with Ghostbusters, the game was pretty much done, ready to go in the last week. And I had this crazy idea that I just couldn't release it without. But I didn't have time, so I contacted uh, guys at the other the East Coast Activision Design Group, which is Gary Kitchen and his brother and some other guys. And um, I contacted them, and I said, look, we got to do this Ghostbusters thing, and I've got to finish the last few bugs. I need help. I want to do a 1950s Follow the Bouncing Ball sing-along for the Ghostbusters theme song as a title page. And um, I contacted the artist who had been working on the game she had done, so I asked her to do the Ghostbusters logo. She did a beautiful job. Um, brought in Russell Lieblick, the late Russell Lieblick, who was uh, one of our um, composers, probably the most well-known of Activision's music composers from that day. And he did an arrangement of the theme song. Adam Bellin, who was just started at um, Activision at the time, was kind of my protege. Uh, he went off to a company that had a an archive to digitize the yelling of Ghostbusters and bring that back. Um, and then the guys in New Jersey made the follow the bouncing ball, and we put it all together. And that's the title screen that uh, we all had so much fun with. And it's legendary. Title screen is is fantastic. You know, it's one of the things you get in there. The music starts up. You've got the logo. All of these elements come together, and it puts you straight into universe it's it's very very cool it, it's an it's an example i mean you know that um many of my games were you know among the best games on a particular console um it's an example that i won't release a game before it's time um a boy in his blob the last that was the worst schedule in the history of video games and for the last two weeks we were working 20 on four hours off until the last couple of days, which were 24 hours a day for two days straight. And one night at about 11 o'clock, these other features I still need to put in. And I was, the blob was, or the boy was riding the cola bubble, um, air bubble, under the water, down at the bottom in the underground cavern. And he was moving around and I said, this just isn't complete until air bubbles come out of that bubble and pop with a little popping sound. And so I woke everybody up. I woke up the artist. I said, it's simple circle, but give me a bubble. Uh, put it into your your art package. Um, got an audio guy. I said, give me the bleep, the bloop, um, you know, the popping sound. Spent a couple hours of coding it just to make those bubbles come out of the cola bubble. And I didn't have to, didn't change the gameplay, but 
I'm, I can get insane that way sometimes and have to put in this thing. Um, so the, the bubble coming out of the air bubble, coming out of the cola bubble and blob, the title screen. I don't know if you've ever taken the disc of Transformers and turned it upside down and put it in the Commodore 64. There's an entire um, slideshow with digitized voice that plays on the flip side of the Transformers disc. And that required completely rewriting the disk driver of the Commodore 64 in, other, in order to generate enough speed to be able to both download graphics and play 4-bit sampled speech to play an entire two or three minute slideshow explaining how the Autobots and Decepticons came from their, their planet and, and it's a flippy. Oh, wow. Well. Oh, I've I've got that disc as well. Like that's uh, I'm a huge Transformers fan. I've, I've you know everything hit perfectly for me at that age. You know, um, as far as uh, you know, cartoons, Saturday mornings, you know, robots, giant robots fighting each other. It it just ticked every single one of my boxes. But I never, and so I now know that I have to play Pitfall using the tunnels, and I'm going to have to flip my uh, my Transformers disc to get the uh, the. So you're putting Easter in basically, at, at, with some Transformers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't believe in Easter eggs so much in that, you know, if I'm going to spend programming time and ROM space and such to put a feature in, I want the feature to be something that you will play and you'll see. So I, I don't like the idea of hiding Easter eggs, particularly. I mean, I... I joke with Warren, I said, you know, those bites that you used to put your name in there, you could have made the dragon not look like a duck. <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, Easter eggs are kind of fun, but uh, I'd rather put the effort into games, into features of the game that you will actually see and play. But, but yeah, I'll do things. Yeah, well, obviously with you, it's the devil is in the detail. I'll do things that are absolutely not necessary but make something just a little bit cooler just because it's cool. And we're the ones who get who get rewarded by that effort because when you when you do something like play a boy in a you play Grand Prix, you play Pitfall, and there are these things like where you work out the button to the joystick so the jump works properly, the lines, you know, the, the air bubbles. Um, we're the ones who get rewarded for that because it just it enhances the gameplay. Because everything is so visually stylized and, and in some cases, you know, innovative for its time, we're the ones who get to sit there and we, we're the ones who reap the benefits of it. Well, that said, I'm really happy that you guys enjoyed playing my games. I admit that I had as much fun making them as you have playing them. All right, man. And with that, I think, um, I think I'll, I'll have to let you go. You've been really gracious with your, with your time and your stories. Um, I really, really do appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and have a chat with me. You were, you were one of the guys who was on my list um, when, I, when I put the very, very first list together. Um, and, uh, and I was over the moon when you got back and said, yeah, you'd, you'd be happy to come on. So, Now, do you, want to, do you want to let people know where they can find you or, or what you're up to at the moment or, or anything like that? Anything you want, to, you want to throw out to the people who are listening? I'm not currently doing anything very fun, but I, um, two or three times a year I do go to Retro Gaming Show Week and I tell all the stories about how the games were made and that sort of thing. So just keep an eye out for the local uh, Retro Gaming Show and um, you know come by and listen to me talk.
Again, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really, really do appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, and good luck with your podcast. And that's where we leave our chat with David Crane. David was a fantastic guest. He was really generous with his time, and we really do appreciate him coming on to the show. Now, our next guest will be one of the legends of DC Comics, Mr. Paul Levitz. Paul is a writer and an editor, and we're really looking forward to having him on the show. That's in two weeks' time. Now, so you don't miss any of our episodes, head over to iTunes and subscribe to The Retro Project. You can leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Twitter at Retro Project Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Retro Project Pod. And you can also send us an email to theretroprojectpod at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening, and this has been the Retro Project Podcast.